The grand finale of Leviticus is here. Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast, Leviticus finale. We're going to be covering the last oh, three or four chapters of this wonderful book. I hope you've learned as much uh, listening to this as I have preparing to record all of these episodes. Um, wonderful things in this book. Okay, what I want to reflect on, though, is that... Um, this is all given at Mount Sinai, and that's the very first line of Leviticus 25. It says, the Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, and this is easy to just read past, right? Oh, great, whatever. It was at that mountain, sure. But this mountain served as a pivot point, um, not just for the Israelites, but for pretty much the history of humanity, because all of the Exodus account was about getting to Mount Sinai. Recall, they didn't say, uh, let my people go so that they can go all the way to the promised land, though ultimately they would. They didn't say, let my people go because, you know, slavery is just generally bad and working conditions are terrible and uh, you need to let these people go. No, that wasn't the rationale. They said, let my people go so that they can worship. That was the point. That's always the point. And that's always the, uh, uh, that's always the choice, slavery or worship. Freedom is meant to be used in our worshipful acts. And anything less than that, sin itself, well, just puts us in bondage to more sin and ultimately to death. So this is where they learn how to worship. Remember, the theme of Leviticus is how to be holy. We learn that corporately. We learn that in an individual scale. We learn that with respect to um, people in our nation, outside of our nation, and even the land itself, the marking of time, how to be holy in a multiplicity of ways. And this is where we learn. So when we read, the Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, this is what they came out of Egypt to hear. This, Leviticus, was what they first heard. Deuteronomy is what they were then reminded of before they actually entered the promised land. All right, so I kind of wanted to have that on the table and also mention that commentators like Augustine have a habit. Whenever they see a mountain being referenced, he reads it as an allusion to a person. And the first time I encountered this in his commentary on John, I thought, eh, Come on, come on, Uncle Augie. That's a bit of a stretch. Really? Mountain, hill, great person, not quite great person. Is that really the way that uh, this is meant to be read? But hey, he's convinced me. He's not the only commentator who's picked up on this. And there's some pretty good support in the Psalms, so I don't have it off the top of my head. Um, so if I was Augustine here, I would take special note of this mountain and what it ultimately points to. Because this is the place where God meets man, a mountain. It's a place where the law comes from, a mountain. And there's a special way in which Mount Sinai itself images Christ. Because this, in all of the Old Testament, just might be the closest thing we have to an incarnation prior to Christ. So, um, in, oh, what is it? Ooh, in Exodus, it reads that God came down to the top of the mountain. And Moses, the representative of, um, well, at that point, all of mankind, pretty much, and a bunch of the elders come up to meet God at the top of the mountain. It's where God meets man, and then the law, 
the word of God is given. So that's actually fulfilled. That event is fulfilled when the word of God, the Logos himself, is where God meets man by becoming man himself. They don't just come up to a common point, becomes a common person, both God and man. So the mountain, the event itself, all of these are imaging Christ. And of course, Moses does too in a variety of ways, but I guess we don't have time to get into that. What I do want to get into is um, is the, the giving of the tablets themselves and what this goes on to symbolize. I would say apologetically, um, oh, let's back up a bit. <laughs> there are three things that really symbolize Jesus like crazy, three physical things in the Old Testament. And they're all held in the Ark of the Covenant. One is the Staff of Aaron, a staff which represents authority, which is uh, marked because it uh, comes back to life. It resurrects. So we have this resurrecting thing here. And Jesus, of course, literally is resurrected. We also have the manna. It's this bread from heaven that sustains the people. It saves them in the desert that lets them get to the promised land. Well, guess what? Jesus is our literal bread from heaven in the Eucharist. Now, Protestants like to pick up on the staff part, right? The resurrection apologetics. Protestants are typically awesome at that and wonderful. They do a legitimately good job on defending the resurrection. And Catholics, we're, we're quick to defend the Eucharist, and of course we should. And I think we do a good job on that, showing that it really, the Eucharist really is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, the new manna. I mean, that was the context of John 6, after all, the bringing of the new manna. But what very few people do a good job of is defending apologetically that third thing, and that is the tablets, <laughs> right? That's that's what happened. When we read this little line, Jesus said to Moses at Mount Sinai, well, yeah, he spoke to him, and then he gave them tablets of stone with the law on them. And Jesus literally is the, the word, the law, the, um, the expression of the will of the Father made flesh, literally, really. So to fulfill the law, we literally participate in his body and blood, like first through baptism and then nourished through the Eucharist. And finally, um, inside of the body, which is the church, which does indeed have lawful authority coming through the apostles rooted in Jesus Christ, the one who resurrected. Where am I going with all this? Good question, listener. Question I like to ask myself. Um, ah, here's what I want to say. Um, this means that we need to do more than just defend the church or Christ. We need to go back one step and defend the Old Testament, the law, the prophets. Um, there's been said to be three pillars of apologetics, the defense of theism, then the resurrection, and then the Catholic Church. And those are three legitimate pillars. But you can only understand Christ as Messiah if understand what a messiah is. If you understand what sin is. If you understand what the run-up of this whole thing was, what the prophets said about the messiah, what the law prescribed that the messiah would then fulfill. So the defense and the understanding of the Old Testament is core to all apologetics. It is that link between theism and the knowledge of our resurrected messiah. And just another plug for the Old Testament— um, the early church almost exclusively taught from the Old Testament. And needless to say, Peter, Paul, John, and let's not forget Jesus, quoted all exclusively from the Old Testament. 
And the church declared it a heresy to reject the Old Testament. Um, and I think in one of the former podcasts in this series, I go through the section in Timothy that Protestants typically quote in defense of Sola Scriptura. I don't think it does that, but here's what it does do. It actually defends the Old Testament. So the view that Protestants have of Scripture, which is legitimately a very high view of Scripture, and that's good, ought to actually be applied to the Old Testament, because Timothy is speaking of the scriptures he knew from the time he was a child. And that would be the Old Testament, not the New Testament, because where we're, where we're reading it is the New Testament and some of the most early letters. So we can insert the words Old Testament in for the word writing or scriptura. All Old Testament is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's true of the Old Testament, says the New Testament. Um, and finally, in the Old Testament, which we have been arguing for, the Torah is esteemed as the uh, as the greatest part of it, right? The five books of Moses. The, the only rival to the greatness of the Torah might be some of the major prophets, say Isaiah, uh, which maybe we need a series on one of these days. Um, but there we go. And finally, this seems to fit our um, current age in salvation history, as explained in episode one, though an argument could be made for Deuteronomy serving this role as well. Well, picking up on verse two, I see we're speeding along. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land I am going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years sow your fields, and six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your unintended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourselves, for your male and female servants, and the hired workers and temporary residents who live among you, as well for your livestock and the wild animals in the land. Whatever the land produces may be eaten. This shows that the Sabbath is present at multiple scales, and this will become more important in the episode. So we have the weekly scale. We also have the seven-year scale, and as we'll see, we have a scale that's one order of magnitude greater than that, yeah, and also one in between. Um, Day of Atonement every seven times seven, and ending on the 50th year. Okay, um, so there are many scales, yes, the weekly, but we also have this rhythm built into even our treatment of the land, which reflects the Sabbath rest. And what we're describing here shouldn't just be read over lightly because this is an enormous act of trust. We're going to learn just a few verses later that this is actually a supernatural sign in response to the obedient faith, um, much like the continuation of the manna in the desert. So, the, and there's commentary of the Jews, which uh, commentary that. Jewish commentary. I don't know why I speak like this. Anyways, um, there's Jewish commentary that connects the faith with regard to the manna with this specific passage. Um, so it's a supernatural sign that continues all the way into the promised land, right? And I want to point out something here. Um, this sign, this abundant harvest, which allows them to continue through the Sabbath year, um, this... Uh, this does not happen because of their faith, 
No. Instead, they obey. And because they're in obedience to God in this covenant context, their faith is then grounded. And it's grounded in the faithfulness of God because they were obedient to his commands. We have prosperity gospel nonsense being spewed out sometimes. And that implies that it begins not with our obedience, but instead it begins with our faith. That our faith causes God to act, and then we get a blessing. No, (laughs) that's not how it works. Um, There's a tension that seems to exist in the New Testament doesn't really exist there. It's only an apparent tension between faith and works. We get James saying, faith without works is dead, right? And I think that this would be a great Old Testament passage to illustrate that. If you just had faith, but you didn't obey God, well, what's the point? Is God going to do anything? No, 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 no. Instead, your faith needs to be shown in your obedience to God. Because faith, another word for that, is trust, sure. But my favorite is allegiance. Um, So we show our allegiance. We practice our allegiance to God by obeying his commandments. That's, That's how we get faith in action. And why do we do it? Well, it's prompted out of our understanding of who God is, how he's faithful, how he has made a covenant with us that he will fulfill. And it's prompted by our love for him. Okay. Um... Another point we need to put here. Look at how God speaks to the land, right? We see this a number of times in scripture. Um, but it's interesting that he, he, he uh, says when you, that he's uh, speaking to the land. He's causing something miraculous to happen to the land. Um, this should bring up some strong Genesis vibes, right? In Genesis, of course, God makes his image out of the dust of the earth and then breathes into the nostrils the breath of life. And uh, here in this law, where we're meant to, uh, uh, we're, we're meant to obey this, this Sabbath rhythm, we are impressing God's order into the land, right? Just like he impressed his image into us. So it's kind of a... Um, Kind of a, a, a domino effect here, where God begins by creating us, by calling us into union with him, by giving us these laws, and then that, that means that it actually transforms the earth. Um, another tie-in here is in Genesis, we have this idea to keep and to till. That's what we're told to do vis-a-vis the earth. And that is the exact same language in Hebrew that we get with all of the priestly acts. I may have mentioned that earlier in some of the sacrificial stuff. So it's a priestly act to imbue the earth itself with God's order, with the rhythm that God would ask us to put into our lives and our societies and the earth itself. The year of Jubilee. Count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month on the day of atonement. Sound the trumpet throughout the land. Consecrate the 50th year 
and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the unintended vibes. For it is a jubilee and it is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. I may have quoted Jesus in an early episode as saying forgive seven times seven instead of 70 times seven. Well, oops, I try. Many of these scriptures that I quote on the podcast are off the top of my head unless I'm reading from like, I don't know, Leviticus. I'm not quoting <laughs> these sections of Leviticus off the top of my head, not even close. Um, but what I have referenced correctly is that seven times 70 is grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy. And now we see the Sabbath seventh day um, as a type of mercy towards us, towards the land, and is meant to bring God's order of action into the created order itself through our priestly act. Um, we, we witnessed this seven in a number of places, um, not just the Sabbath day that we talked about a few episodes earlier, but also in a bunch of the sacrificial acts, because each one of those are meant to be ordered around mercy, around grace. And in the ordination of priests, we have this seven repeated again and again. I believe also with the, um, with the cleansing of lepers, right? When we bring them back into the community, they get a very ordination-like treatment. They also get that um, being born again, which I thought was a really cool uh, part, where they're shaved, they look like babies, they come back into the covenant um, on the eighth day when kids are circumcised, all that good stuff. We get the sprinkling of seven on them a number of times. So we have all of those sevens, but here are some more. Good old Genesis. We have Lamech kills a young man who had wounded him and demands to be avenged seven times 70. And this is definitely being alluded to by Christ where he says, instead of being avenged, avenging sin, 70 times seven, how about we forgive seven times 70? Wait, did I say seven or 70? I don't know. I'm doing a terrible job of this. Instead of avenging, um, exacting judgment, seven times 70, we're supposed to forgive seven times 70. There you go. Numbers are right for sure that time. And by the way, with this incident of Lamech, um, there is a midrash about this where Lamech accidentally killed Cain. And it was a hunting accident. Um, he didn't have very good eyesight. He saw something through the bushes and he shot an arrow and, uh, well, it turns out it wasn't an animal. It was Cain. Um, it was an unintentional killing. And he figured, well, if Cain got seven times avengement, um, for anybody who would kill him for an intentional, well, come on, I get like seven times 70 if I killed this dude, but accidentally. So that's some interesting math for you. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but I figured I'd share that because it's interesting. Here is a much more interesting seven times 70, in my opinion, though. It is from the prophet Daniel in his greatest prophetical slam dunk. That is when he predicts the coming of Jesus. Not just there will be a Messiah. Nothing vague or uh, like 
retroactively understood, no, 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 this was the expectation leading up to Jesus. This is why we had a messianic fervor in the first century. It's because Daniel said, well, let's just read it. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of the people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in a swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you an insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, and to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until the anointed one, the Messiah, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven in the middle of the seven. He will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So why do I bring all this seven stuff up? Not just because it's my seventh episode, but because we have a couple things going on. First, Genesis shows us the great scale of sin and retribution, the avenging of seven times 70. But Leviticus, which is all about how to live a holy life, shows us on a human scale how we get the stacking of mercy, the stacking of the Sabbath years, to the great conclusion at the end of the seven times seven jubilee, where we are restored to the land, set free from slavery, our debts are canceled, and we get a rest from our labor. Now, seven times seven is 49. And seven times 70 is the same, but one magnitude greater. It's on the grander scale. So here, Daniel shows us the great scale of forgiveness, which is coming in this seven times 70 weeks, this time where we have, well, what did he say here? We have the, uh, the uh, finishing of transgression, an end to sin, the atonement for wickedness, a bringing of an everlasting righteousness, and a sealing up of the vision of prophecy. Um, that's pretty wild stuff. So Daniel shows us the great scale of forgiveness. And then, um, what did the Messiah do when he actually came? Well, he undid the cycle of violence that was plaguing us from Genesis. He fulfills the Jubilee of Leviticus, and he arrives on time for Daniel's prophecy, dies, and rises again according to the scripture. So, Jesus shows that the scale of salvation ultimately 
um, comes down to a point in each one of us. So yes, he fulfills the vision of Daniel, but he also fulfills Leviticus in that that was meant to be something that every person in their lifetime got to experience. There's this mega scale of the retribution for skin of sin. Then there's the mega scale of the announcement of the messianic kingdom. But Leviticus zeroes in on our life of holiness and shows that there's a scale that relates exactly to us. And that's also fulfilled in Christ. few things about the prophecy of Daniel here. One, he's actually predicting that the temple will be rebuilt. At that time, that did not look likely. Um, however, that did happen, and according to schedule. And then from that time, we count up to about 32 AD is um, a, a common way to, to count those based on the decree that we get that you can go back and rebuild the temple. So that, I mean, yes, that's the point where, where Jesus is uh, full on ministering, right? Um, and then, of course, Jesus died, just like Daniel said. And we have um, the destruction of the temple afterwards, which Daniel mentions and did indeed happen at 70, um, at 70 AD. Um, oh, after that, we get this abomination that causes desolation. That should be familiar to you from the book of Revelation. So it's actually echoing Daniel, where Daniel is seeing pretty darn far into the future here. All right. Um, yeah, yeah, let's uh let's keep rolling here. The Jubilee is fantastic. We like the Jubilee a lot. That's where um in our Jubilee we become no longer slaves to sin, right? The slaves are set free. We're no longer wanderers in a foreign land, but in a sense because of what Christ did, the world has become a type of Eden again. It's not under the rule of Satan, it's under the rule of Christ. Yes, Satan's still running around, but Christ has uh, Christ defeated him at the cross. And uh, we no longer pay uh, owe an unpayable debt because we were adopted into the family of God as sons and daughters and therefore have received an inheritance of eternal life if we've been baptized. Okay, okay. Verse 13. In this year of Jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. If you sell land to any of your own people or buy land from them, do not take advantage of each other. You are to buy from your own people on the basis of the number of years since the jubilee, and they are to sell you on, and they are to sell it to you on the basis of the number of years left for harvesting crops. When the years are many, you are to increase the price, and when the years are few, you are to decrease the price, because that is really what is being sold to you, which is the number of crops. Do not take advantage of other of one another, but fear your God. I am the Lord your God. Do you remember all the way back to when I did a uh, two-part episode on an article by Jacob Amam and Mark Barnes? And I made the point a number of times that when we purchase a stock, what we're actually really purchasing is the, uh, the value of a future earning stream, right? That was my point. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say that this backs me up big time because when we're talking about this productive asset, they didn't really have stocks, right? But they did have land, right? That was their ownership of a productive thing. Um, scripture right here says to bias the worth of it, not based on some intrinsic value, not based on some whatever. No, you got to bias it based on 
how many years are left for harvesting because it says um, what's really being sold to you is the number of crops. That's what dictates the price. So when we're talking about the purchase of productive assets, what we should be talking about is the value that it creates into the future. Thus saith the Lord. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if I can justify all of my statements by just that saith the Lord, but I think that one actually fits. All right. Verse 18. Follow my decrees and be careful to obey my laws, and you will live safely in the land. Then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and live there in safety. You may ask, what will we eat on the seventh year if we don't plant or harvest our crops? I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. While you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop. And we'll continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes in. So, what we're reading is, of course, prior to the resurrection of Christ. In other words, it's at the point in covenant history where the provision of God was chiefly earthly. Nevertheless, we did see some um, uh, pretty clear signs that we would have a resurrection later on. And we have people who hope in God's provision outside of the earthly time frame, into the afterlife, right? Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, um, Daniel, other people who were either martyred or uh, willing to be martyred. And certainly later on in some of the Deuterocanonical books, the idea of a resurrection um, becomes even greater. Hebrews, of course, reflects back on the, the, uh, the, the Hall of Famers in faith, many of which were willing to lay down their lives. But um, here in Salvation History, the normative way that God shows his provision for people is in material, physical, earthly stuff. In our age, things start to shift. And consequently, we get a ton more martyrs. The beginning of the church was uh, just absolutely soaked in the blood of martyrs. Um, just a few years after Christianity really was taking off, uh, that that's what... Well, not necessarily a few years, um, but a number of years after, we start to get terrible martyrs. And that's not in opposition to what we learn here in the law, that God's going to give us this type of uh, provision. No, it's just carried on into the life which was unlocked, that promised land which was unlocked by our resurrected Savior. So now the normative way that God gives us provision is he gives us treasure which is actually better than the treasure we have on earth. Christ says that it's stored up where moth and rust do not corrode and where thieves do not break in and steal. So stepping out in faith today looks a lot like martyrdom. And though there are um, times where God can give us things in the material order, sure, um, God's provision looks a lot less like a supernatural agrarian calendar and certainly not like a stupid prosperity gospel, um, which is just a terrible, evil perversion of the gospel. Instead, it looks like us having a solid, rational, faith-filled expectation in the goodness of God that extends into the afterlife because of our obedience here on earth. Just like they had the obedience in not planting, and they had the uh, supernatural sign of incredible abundance. Well, we're going to have obedience in, uh, in uh, following the, the, what Christ asks us to do. And our faith will be well-founded. All right. 
23. The land must not be permanently sold because the land is mine and you reside in the land as foreigners and strangers. Throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. So what's all this doing here? Well, it's cultivating a, um, a uh, certain spirit, a certain idea in the minds of the Israelites that this is not permanent, permanent, permanent forever. We have a Messiah that we're ultimately hoping for. We have the recreation of the entire world we're hoping for. And that just like when we were in the desert, we were wanderers. Well, even when we reach the promised land, there's a sense that we are still wandering this earth, that this is still temporary, transitory, that we should, should still celebrate the Passover with our sandals on, with our staff in our hand, right? Um, Paul reminds us that we are citizens ultimately of heaven. Uh, he says uh, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things, but our, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the spirit that this cultivates in them. They make the land impermanent because in a very real sense, it is. And we should have that same spirit. Um, St. Augustine, um, if he were to pop into the podcast, would absolutely say, and in very many words, what he said in the city of God, right? We have a dual citizenship in the kingdom of man and in the kingdom of God. Like it or not, we are part of the of the city of uh, um, city of Cain that was rooted ultimately in the slaying of Abel and the grasping for worldly power, the um, uh, the rejection of, of God's means of worship. And uh, like it or not, we are mostly in governments which are uh, quite secular, sometimes acting evilly. But we're also citizens of heaven. And from you know, the line of Seth down, we have, um, we have the city of God. And it grew, and it continued to grow, and it grows out into a giant tree, right, that Christ himself talks about, that from the seed, like a mustard seed, it grows into this giant tree. So we have a foot in both of these because we are still here on earth, and that's why we hope eventually for the, um, uh, the uh, final judgment, for the resurrection of the dead, for the life in the world to come. So this type of spirit is being inculcated to them in this type of uh, land redemption, uh, temporary sale kind of stuff that this is not our final home. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they've sold. If, however, there is no one to redeem it for them, but uh, nobody, nobody to redeem it for them, but later on they prosper and acquire sufficient means to redeem it themselves, they are to, re, to determine the value for the years since they sold it and refund the balance to the one whom they sold it. They can then go back to buy their own property. But if they do not acquire the means to repay that was sold will remain in the possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. It will be returned in the Jubilee, and they can go back to their property. I guess there's a couple points that I want to make here. Um, here's a big one. Aquinas and plenty of others talk about how the incarnation was fitting. And yes, it was. And uh, here's one reason. Uh, you recall the Gospels begin with like genealogies. And is this boring? Well, yes, it is. But it shows us something that's quite extraordinary. 
That is that God, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph and Mary, registered in Bethlehem, was part of a real human family with a real genealogy. What's the meaning? Well, he's our relative, right? The gospel writer of, uh, of uh, what, good old Matthew, well, he goes back to Abraham to show that, hey, the Jews that I'm writing to, um, he's related all the way back to Abraham, which means he's all of our relative. And Luke, who's writing to really everybody, Gentiles, he goes all the way back to Adam to say, hey, you know, Jesus, he's your relative too, because he is commonly related to all mankind. It goes all the way back to Adam, guys. We are all related. So it's a relative who redeems, right? That's the person that's meant to come and, and pay in order to get our property back, in order to pay, in order to get ourselves back if we were in slavery. Uh, that's why we get like the story of Ruth and Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, and why that's so perfectly illustrative of what happened in salvation. Anyone who sells a house in a walled city retains the right of redemption for a full year after its sale. During that time, the seller may redeem it. It is not redeemed before a full year has passed and the wall is in the and the houses in the walled city shall belong permanently to the buyer and the buyer's descendants. It is not to be returned in the jubilee, but houses in villages without walls around them are to be considered as belonging to the open country. They can be redeemed and they are to be returned in the jubilee. So there's just a practical matter going on here where if you're building a house in an open country, well, you can just build another one, right? That's very different than in a walled city. So there's a certain permanence to the uh, maximal number of houses that can be in a walled city. The law recognizes this. So it actually looks not just at, you know, good economic principles, <laughs> like um, the value of a productive asset is linked to its its productive years, you know, minus, you know, salvage value and all that other stuff. It recognizes these things. Um, it also recognizes the ability to increase and decrease supply of certain things and regulates them economically um, in different ways. But that's not really the point I wanted to make. I referenced in an earlier podcast laws about um, the, uh, the Avenger and Levitical cities. And I totally forgot that that wasn't in Leviticus. Um, no, it's in the book of Numbers. And it's in the end of the book of Numbers, I believe. So we're going to pick up on verse 9. And I know this is a Leviticus series, but because I thought it was in Leviticus, I'm including it in my Leviticus series. Here it is, and I think it relates to what we just read. Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, select some towns to be your cities of refuge, to which a person who has killed somebody accidentally may flee. They will be places of refuge from the accuser, so that anyone accused of murder may not die before they stand trial before the assembly. These six towns you will, be, you will give to be your cities of refuge. Give three on this side of the Jordan and three in Canaan as cities of refuge. These six towns will be placed of refuge for Israelites and for foreigners residing among you, so that anyone who has killed another accidentally may flee there. If anyone strikes someone a fatal blow with an iron object, that person is a murderer. The murderer is to be put to death. Or if anyone is holding a stone and strikes someone a fatal blow with it, that person is a murderer, and the murderer is to be put to death. 
Or if anyone is holding a wooden object and strikes someone a fatal blow, that person is a murderer, and the murderer is to be put to death. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death. When the avenger comes upon the murderer, the avenger shall put the murderer to death. If anyone with malice of forethought shoves another or throws someone or throws something at them intentionally so that they die, or if out of enmity one person hits another with their fists so that the other dies, that person is to be put to death. That person is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when they meet. Just thought of something here, guys. Um, we seem to be going through a, uh, a list of, uh, of references, and I don't know all the references, but I do know some. Um, I'm pretty sure that Cain killed Abel with a stone. Not entirely sure. Um, I do know that um, in the very context of Lamech that we talked about earlier is the story of Tubal Kham who's the inventor of iron. So now we have the killing with iron. Oh, and by the way, I'm pretty sure that midrash that I referenced earlier is where um, uh, it was a iron arrow uh, killed the guy. So we have a death by stone, a death by iron. Oh, I'm not sure about these other ones. I think that maybe there's even a reference to, to Moses here because Moses kills that guy. And I think he does it with his fist, but maybe these are actually references to specific people. Um, I do think that they obviously are um, dictating actions about what we should do when people kill stuff, but um, or kill people. But I think that they might actually have a little bit more meaning here than than just that, because I think it's interesting that they don't just say anybody who intentionally murders, um, but it lists these specific materials with which you kill. But if without enmity someone suddenly pushes another or throws something at them unintentionally or without seeing them, drops on them a stone heavy enough to kill them and they die, then since the other person was not an enemy and no harm was intended, the assembly must judge between the accused and the avenger of blood according to these regulations. The assembly must protect the one accused of murder from the avenger of blood and send the accused back to the city of refuge to which they fled. The accused must stay there until the death of the high priest, who is anointed with holy oil. Did you hear that part, guys? But if the accused ever goes outside of the limits of the city of refuge to which they fled, and the avenger of blood finds them outside of the city, the avenger of blood may kill the accused without being guilty of murder. The accused may stay in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Only after the death of the high priest may they return to their own property. Kaboom. Kaboom was not part of this. Um, why I like this so much? Because... It's been described that our first parents committed a murder-suicide um, when they disobeyed God. And all of us who have committed sins are turning against our own soul. All of us who have committed mortal sins have killed the divine life in our soul. So there's an extent that these, um, <laughs> the stuff about murder can relate to us, right? Moses, the very giver of the law, is called a murderer. But look at how... Scripture deals with this. It's a very interesting way. There's an accuser, right? Um, that's one of the words we have for Satan, one who's accusing us, um, accusing us and wishes to kill us. And that's what um, that's what's going on in the Old Testament. We have guilty people, and where have they fled from the accuser? 
from the one who brings death on them. And yeah, just death in this case. Where? Where do they go? They go to these cities. What cities are they? Oh, they're Levitical cities. And what did we just read about these houses and the, the, the Levites um, uh, owning of these cities in these walled places? What did we read about that? Oh, there's special regulations to make sure that these places continue. Hmm, interesting, interesting. So the way I read this is that at this point in salvation history, um, God's people are protected from death, um, protected from Satan by staying in the walls of the law. So the law is a wall that protected them. If you stay inside of the wall, even though you have done a horrible act, you're safe. If you live here with the Levites in these cities, you're protected. You're safe. And that is the story of the Old Testament. Until, until the anointed, Messiah means anointed one, until this messianic, this anointed high priest, Christ is our high priest, dies. At which point, the walls don't go away. They're there, sure. But you are let outside of the walls and you can return to your own property. That's incredible. We get to go out and uh, bring the gospel to every corner of the earth. That's part of the Great Commission. Why? Because our high priest, our Messiah, has died. Oh, yes, and he rose again, which means that the avenger of blood, the accuser himself, Satan, well, he, has no, he has no right to kill us anymore. Nope. And all of that is foreshadowed here in the law. Let's take a, uh, no, let's not take a break. Let's hit this next part, and then let's take a break. The Levites always have the right to redeem their houses in the Levitical towns which is kind of what we were talking about, which they possess. So the property of the Levites is redeemable. That is, a house sold in any town they hold and is to be returned to the, is to be returned in the Jubilee because the houses in the towns of the Levites are their property among the Israelites. But the pasture land belongs to their towns and must not be sold. It is their permanent possession. Recall, the Levites are the only guys who don't get a section of the promised land. They get cities, and they are scattered throughout. I do want to make a point here. Um, when we're going through these different laws about how land gets returned to the different tribes, there is a play of uh, unity and diversity here in Israel. There is a common, uh, common god, a common worship. There is one holy city, Jerusalem, which everybody streams to. Um, there's a lot that brings these people into unity. The way that they dress, the things that they eat, the, all of these laws, each of those bind them into this, this common, uh, common unity centered around and caused by a single love, that of God himself, um, which brings them to love others and the created order, etc., they also have a common earthly father, right? They have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Um, Jacob being the father of the originators of each tribe. And by the way, I think we need an episode just on Jacob. I think he's a very misunderstood 
Very interesting figure. It's him and the Apostle Paul who have the biggest character arcs, I think, in all of Scripture. Um, but they have his common unity and a common father, both God and in Jacob. But they're also divided into these very unique tribes with different roles, with different character, uh, with different charisms, with um, different um, um, different temperaments too. Uh, we talked earlier about the tribe of Benjamin. That's one where Benjamin can be a terrible enemy of the people of Israel. He, they can kind of go rogue sometimes, but then they can turn back and be incredibly effective defenders of the people. No surprise, the apostle Paul was from Benjamin. So he goes from Saul, he's mirroring early Benjamite behavior, and then he's knocked off his horse, or that's not necessarily in the passage, but um, he's presented with the, the vision of Christ, um, and he's, uh, he's told to no longer persecute, but instead to turn the other way. And he does, like Benjamin. So we have these different characters, right? Uh, different tribes. And they represent different modes of uh, operating within the kingdom. We have that today, right? We have the Dominicans, the Franciscans, the Jesuits, the Eastern Rite churches and all their variety, the Maronites, the, uh, the Carmelites, many more. We have different dioceses. We have a Latin Mass. We have Novus Order. We have all sorts of different stuff. But we have a common love. We have a unified common worship in the Mass. And uh, we have a means of unity in a common leader, even though there are other subsidiary leaders like the bishops. So there's a, uh, a mirroring of the way that we have uh, Israel laid out and these lands which are meant to... Uh, be given back to these unique tribes so that we don't lose their their diversity and their uniqueness. Not so that they can be divided and scattered and rogue, but instead so that they can operate like a body. Recall Paul gives the master narrative of, um, of the church as the body of Christ. And he describes that, that unity, the one body nature, the lack of division in a sense, there's no Jew or Gentile, but then the diversity of role and calling and even dignity are all an eye, are all an ear, right? Um, all are not the tribe of Benjamin, thank goodness. Let's see. Um, yes, let's take our promise break, and then we're going to, uh, we're going to pick up with, uh, we're going to pick up with some stuff about poverty, which might be shocking to you. Might not, I don't know. <laughs> If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and a stranger, so that they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God, so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan, and to be your God. Now, if somebody cannot pay for food, and you give them a loan at interest, um, then basically what you're doing is you're playing on their hope, and you're profiting off of that, and you're hastening their death. Because if they really can't support themselves, and you force them to pay back 
interest in addition to what they think that they need to to get by in this period of time, well, then you're actually basically hastening their death. And I would say that's certainly a problem. But I do want to call something to, uh, to your attention here. I think if I asked most people, what would the Bible say we should do for the poor, people who can't support themselves? What do you think most people would say? I think most people would say, oh, well, we should give them food. Or, oh, we should give them money, right? That's pretty common. Give them food, give them money. Sure, yeah. But Leviticus doesn't say that. Here, notice that there's a prohibition on charging interest. Basically, um, extracting from people who have very little already. But it doesn't say you have to lose money on your loan. Note that it says you can't profit off them. But it doesn't say that you don't have to be repaid for the cost of the food. It's not saying that you're required to take a loss on the food or a loss on your loan. And this law is talking about justice. Give the money and get the money back, right? Same amount. Sell the food and get exactly equal to the cost of the food. And there's a real sense in which we are not under a compulsion to show mercy, to act with supernatural charity, or to give to those without a desired um, return at all. You don't owe the poor anything in virtue of their poverty or in virtue of your wealth in the order of justice. Instead, our gifts to the poor are a, <clears throat> are a model of God's gifts to us. God does not owe us anything in the order of justice. None of us can say that God owes us something. That's not true. If God, if you, O oh Lord, mark iniquities, who can stand, right? None of us can stand before God and make a claim. So he saves us completely through mercy. And we're meant to model God in this regard. We're meant to save people through mercy. And that does mean feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, caring for people who don't have. But I definitely want to have on the table here that justice itself does not demand that we take a loss um, just because somebody else is poor. We read earlier in the law that we are not to show partiality to the poor or the rich. But I believe it actually began with the poor. And that that was linked directly to, to justice. So I don't want to just live in a just society. I don't think you should either. I want to live in a merciful society. Justice by itself can be, can be pretty tough, right? Um, I think we all understand that. Um, but I, I, okay, but a few other things I want to, I want to put out on this one here. One, uh, there's kind of three steps that are being laid out in this section of Leviticus. Step one is, can you exist in free society and earn a living, right? That's where Leviticus and all of the law wants you to be. Be a productive member of society, don't be poor, you know, be participating in this blessing that came corporately uh, through the nations obedient to the covenant of God. That's where it wants you to be. Now, let's say um, you can't quite feed yourself and supply your, your yourself with things. 
Leviticus takes a step two and says, all right, you're not up to step three yet. We're going we're gonna to lower the bar. We're going to lower the bar and we're going to make you a deal. You just have to pay what the food costs. No profit. You just have to pay back the loan. No interest. Okay, we're just going to make it a little bit easier. Um, so that's that's stage two. Um, at that point, uh, you're saying you can't really exist without it. Like if you can't do stage stage two, that means that you can't exist in your current mode of living without consuming more than you give to society. And Leviticus isn't keen on scenario three. In scenario three, if you can't even generate enough to meet that lower bar whereby people are selling you things at cost, well, it's at that point that you're going to sell yourself into slavery. And don't worry, we're going to talk about slavery. So in this stage three, it's okay, what you were doing wasn't working to live in a free society. It wasn't working when we lowered the bar for you and let you just pay the bare necessary amount to uh, to represent justice, you're in stage three now, which means you need to lean on the prudence of a household that does indeed generate enough value for others to be sustainable in the long term in order for you to enjoy wealth. And by the way, slaves can become quite wealthy and quite powerful. So it brings those people who have gone all the way down to stage three, my numbering my stages right. Anyways, step three. Um, people who can't even survive when things are at cost. It brings those people into a household where they can learn to do as they do, where they can grow in virtue. And then they get to try again <laughs> because they can either buy themselves out, right? We learned about that earlier. So if they've learned their lesson, they've learned how to work hard. They've learned how to plan ahead. They've learned how to make value. They've maybe picked up a few skills. Uh, um, skills that allowed them to be more productive in the marketplace, then they can buy themselves out. Or they can wait until Jubilee, at which point they get to try again. And that's the whole point. Leviticus doesn't want anybody enslaved. The law doesn't want a single slave. The whole point is that this is a free people set free by God himself. But the ultimate slavery is actually to sin, to vice, and virtue is what sets you free. And this is meant to be a school of virtue. The law is a means by which we learn how to be virtuous. And people are instrumental in that. So that's the role of slavery, to bring people into households so that they can be virtuous enough to exist freely in society. Now, there's actually a penalty, I believe it's in Deuteronomy, for if you don't want to be free. It's a penalty. If you want to be a slave, then your ear is pierced with an awl. And then you become a slave for life. That is a penalty. We don't want that to happen to you. You're being punished for that. People are meant to be free. That's what Leviticus is actually saying here. So what does that mean uh, with economic policy today? I think that means a lot. Maybe that's an entire new episode. But um, I'll point to a few things. One is um, we ought to care a lot about means to train, to equip, to empower so that people can make good use of their freedom, because that's what these laws are about. And that what we don't want to do is to enable and to infantilize, because that's not what the law did. It said, okay, we'll lower the bar a little bit, but we're not going to destroy justice. We're not going to show partiality to the poor any more than we would show partiality to the rich. We want justice 
as our baseline. And then mercy goes over and atop that. Um, okay, let's move on. Let's move on. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. They are to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work until the year of Jubilee. Then they and their children are to be released, and they will go back to their own clans and to the property of their ancestors, because the Israelites are my servants who I brought out of Egypt. They must not be sold as slaves. Do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. Now, hired workers are ones who are trained, ones who are participating in the labor that their, um, that, that their boss is engaged in. And that's why it says, treat them like a hired worker, right? Train them, get them ready for freedom because in the year of Jubilee, they get freedom. Or if a relative buys them out, then they are free. Or if they buy themselves out, they are free. And the whole goal is that they have the skills, the mentality, and the virtue for freedom. And if they don't, again, they're brought into a household that does so that they can learn. Um, a few things about biblical slavery. This has nothing to do with American Old South slavery. Anybody who thinks that they're similar is just ridiculously ignorant. As I mentioned before, slaves in the Bible can be extraordinarily rich, extraordinarily powerful, and extraordinarily well-respected. And that's true in a lot of the ancient world. For instance, Joseph right? He was a slave. <laughs> and then he ended up becoming uh, second only to Pharaoh. Also, slavery in the Old South continues forever. This continues until Jubilee. Oh, and you can buy yourself out and your family can buy yourself out. Oh, and if they abuse a slave, then you're automatically let out. Next, working conditions are regulated. And I believe it's Deuteronomy that goes into a variety of these regulations, but we have some of the earliest worker protection laws in the history of mankind in the Bible. Uh, next, forced slavery is not a thing in the Bible. There is only, well, there's POWs, right? So if somebody comes and tries to, and th this is common, there is literally a war season through most of human history where you plant, you go to war, and you come back. That's pretty much the, uh, the yearly cycle. So we would have war seasons where all men go out to war. It's a hideous, horrible thing. And when they do that, people will come into your nation. They will try to kill you, try to kill your friends. They will try to take your wives. They will take your children. They will burn down your cities. They will take your homes, steal your crops. They might put you in slavery. These are a bunch of murderers coming in to rape and to pillage and to destroy. That, that, under Levitical law, is murder or attempted murder, and that's death penalty stuff. So when we have a foreign force coming, the fact that some of them can be put into slavery, and that would not necessarily be um, voluntary slavery at all, that is in lieu of them being executed because they were trying to kill and rape and pillage and destroy everything and everyone. So you're saying, hey, you have to undo some of the damage that you did to my nation. That is right and just. Yes. Um, all other slaves who weren't like enemies who came in to try to do, take over your nation, all other slaves are voluntary, short term, under regulations, and can be bought out at any time. 
um, and are let out in Jubilee. That is so different from American self-slavery. If you force somebody into slavery in the Old Testament, that falls under kidnapping laws, and it's the death penalty for doing that. So all of those idiots who are down in the Confederate states saying, well, the Bible justifies slavery. No, it doesn't. The Bible says that all the people in the Old South who force somebody in slavery need to be buried up into their neck in sand and then be beat in the head with rocks with people surrounding them on all sides until they die. That is literally the penalty for what they did to people in the Old South. It has nothing to do with biblical slavery. Anybody who thinks so is just perverting it in a satanic and evil way. Okay. Um, there you go. So this is more like a, um, like a, a long-term labor contract. And these types of contracts are pretty darn important um, because we're dealing with the time where everybody is near subsistence levels. So we need to ensure that harvests come in. We need to ensure that labor is constant and people would sign up for long-term agreements to provide labor. And guess what? That's something that happens even today when we have really important things. Um, some, uh, uh, some jobs you'll find there's huge penalties for breaking a contract because you are a vital worker. Um, let me give you an even more poignant example. If you want to join the military, it's about a minimum eight-year contract, so longer than um, any Israelite would be um, working because the Jubilee comes every seven years. And if you abandon the, your post, if you run away, then that's the death penalty. That's treason. You can't do that. Deserters um, have incredibly high punishments, much higher than we see in Leviticus, also, uh, the working conditions for our American military, I, woo, a lot more dangerous than um, Levitical working conditions. Uh, the stuff that they had to put up with, a lot more difficult. Really, in any possible metric I can think of, um, the contract that you sign up for in the military is much more like um, what people think of as slavery than what Leviticus and Deuteronomy lay out, and it's not particularly close. I think that it's perfectly fine for us to have contracts like the American military offers. Yes, with harsh punishments for desertion, things like that. Yes, with the lack of working hours, or you might have to work all, all day and all night at times. Yes, with a serious, um, a serious threat of, of violence from enemy foes and whatnot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think people should be able to engage in that contract. In fact, I think it's very honorable and respect, and um, we should respect those people who do that. So if you accept that that's a reasonable arrangement, then you have to accept that what's being laid out in the Torah, which is way more mild than that, is also reasonable because, well, that was also a life and death profession. Um, <laughs> They're near subsistence levels again. Okay. Um, it referenced children. You might think, oh, no, well, this is bad. They're putting children as slaves. No, 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 no. You have it all wrong. Imagine you cannot create enough value in the marketplace hiring yourself out as a worker. Maybe you don't have the skills. Maybe you don't have the whatever. For whatever reason, you can't feed yourself. Okay. So you're going to starve and die. And if you have kids, your kids are going to starve and die. Now, when, um, when you find a, an opportunity to be a slave, you say, hey, can you buy me as a slave? And someone says, yes. What would happen to your kids? 
slaves get enough for them to live. But Scripture, the law, being extraordinarily kind, says that children get to be slaves too. So it doesn't leave the kids out in the, in the, in the cold. It includes them into that household that their parents were included in, which means that the people who buy the parents also are required to care for the kids because those parents couldn't care for those kids because if they could, then they wouldn't be selling themselves as slaves. So children aren't forced to be slaves. This is not a con. This is an enormous pro. Children get to be part of the contract whereby they're included in a household where they will absolutely get a guarantee of being fed and clothed and taken care of. And we want that for children. Uh, verse 45. Your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. From them you may buy slaves. You may also buy some of the temporary residents living among you and members of their clans born in your country, and they may become your property. You can bequeath them to your children as inherited property and can make them slaves for life, but you must not rule over your fellow Israelites ruthlessly. So who's coming from the nations around you? Uh, chiefly, it's POWs, people who either tried to kill people in your nation or others that were captured. Again, you can't force somebody into slavery. That's the death penalty. Um, also, I'll add that the reason why these wicked surrounding nations can uh, be purchased as slaves is because, um, and people don't realize this, they're really wicked evil cultures. The effect of, of the Messiah was worldwide and changed everything. The normal state of humanity is unbelievably, incredibly wicked. And the fact that the whole world has been Christianized to such an extent means that we, we would not recognize what was going on in the past. So these people get to come into Israel, the one place where God is really speaking, the one place of right worship, the one place of human freedom, of respect for human dignity. They get to be brought into this. And when you are a slave, you are part of a family. You are part of a household. You are included in a covenant. You can participate in the sacrifices. You can participate in uh, much of the worship. So this isn't a... Uh, this isn't actually a, a decrease in freedom for these people. They go from being slaves to evil, wicked, ruthless people in the surrounding nation to be included into the covenant people and protected under Levitical, and, uh, uh, under Levitical laws about governing slaves and the laws in Deuteronomy, which protect these people also. Um, oh, are they property? Well, look. The Bible makes people property. Wham, wham, wham. Um, no, as we'll read very quickly, um, what you're actually buying is their labor, right? That's what's explained in just a moment. All right, let's keep on going. If a foreigner residing among you becomes rich and any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to the foreigner, to a member of the foreigner's clan, they retain the right of redemption after they have sold themselves. Many of their relatives may one of their relatives may redeem them. An uncle or a cousin or any blood relative in their clan may redeem them. Or if they prosper, they may redeem themselves. They and their buyer are to count the time from the year they sold themselves up to the year of Jubilee. 
the price for their release is based on the rate paid to a hired worker for that number of years. If many years remain, they must pay for their redemption for a larger share of the price paid for them. If only a few years remain until the year of Jubilee, they are to compute that and pay for their redemption accordingly. They are to be treated as workers hired from year to year. You must see to it that those to whom they owe service do not rule over them ruthlessly. Um, there we go. So we have what you're actually purchasing is their labor. And that's showed in the computation of the worth of a slave, which isn't the worth of them. It is not worth of them as property. It is the worth of this contract because it is substituting the work of a hired worker over a set number of years. This is not saying that people are property. It's saying that people's labor can be bought over the course of years for a lump sum in this salary-like contract. I, I wish if I was to create a, a, a translation of the Bible, not that I'm at all competent to do so, but if I was, I would replace all places in the Old Testament where it's talking about slavery with the word salaried workers. Because I think that's a lot more true to what's actually going on here. Um, all right. Let's keep on rolling here. Even if someone is not redeemed in any of these ways, they and their children are to be released in the year of Jubilee. For the Israelites belong to me as servants. They are my servants, whom I brought out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now we're pivoting into some rewards for obedience. We, we just got all the wonderful stuff about uh, slavery. And uh, now, we're talking about, um, uh, now we're talking about obedience and disobedience. Now, the whole slavery thing um, is picked up in the Old Testament, of course, where Paul says that we're actually slaves to Christ. And that one can make us feel uncomfortable. Oh, does that mean that Christ is mean to us? Oh, does that mean that Christ makes us just uh, do whatever he wants? Well, no, it actually means that we, especially if you're a Gentile, like me, um, we're brought from evil places, from evil nations, and we're included into a covenant household that we learn virtuous means by which we can actually pull our weight. Um, when we're brought into the household of God, it is Christ who enables us through the divine love he pours into our souls to make real meritorious actions, which actually accrue to us so that when we get to heaven, there is a sense in which we deserve it. Not because we paid our own eternal set of sin, Jesus did that, but because God has transformed us in this life and through purgatory into a type of people, because we're included into his family, that actually do virtuous things by habit and out of love for God. That was the goal of slavery in the Old Testament, and that's what Paul means when he says we are slaves to Christ. He is talking about the learning of virtue by a people who are not able at all to sustain themselves, to save, to save themselves. All righty. Chapter, chapter something, I think chapter 25. Do not make idols or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourself. And do not place a carved stone in your land to bow down before it. I am the Lord your God. Observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my, for my sanctuary. I am the Lord your God. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season. And the ground will yield its crops and the trees their fruit. 
Your threshing will continue, your grape harvest, and the grape harvest will continue until planting, and you will eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. So this continues um, a number of economic blessings, which uh, get repeated throughout Scripture. Um, let me just run down how exactly this plays out. God set up this world, and it means that if we act virtuously, good things happen. So there's a sense that there's something supernatural going on, but there's also a huge sense that there's something very natural going on. And Rerum Navarum in that series definitely um, says as much. So if we lack oppression of others, if we're not oppressing people, well, it's cultures like these which produce wonderful innovations because people aren't oppressed, they're free. So we get innovation that brings about wealth. Likewise, if we have peace amongst neighbors, amongst neighborhoods, amongst states, internal to an entire country, amongst countries, then this peace allows us to trade. Then we get the gains from trade and we become wealthy. So lack of oppression, peace between people. If we have honesty and integrity in us, then that massively reduces uh, transaction cost, compliance costs, um, third-party verification costs. And that means that we're more wealthy. If we have fair laws and we meter out justice right, in other words, all of these, I'm listing moral actions and the ensuing economic blessing. So fair laws, metering out justice in a reasonable way, that's going to give people confidence to invest, that laws aren't going to shift, that we're not just all of a sudden going to descend into a kleptocracy. If we have no idolatry, picked up with idolatry at the beginning of this chapter, well, then we're not going to be tempted to rampant consumerism. And consumerism means that we shift the gains from our labor to, um, to consumption of goods instead of investment. So if we don't have this idolatrous spirit, we're going to invest more, to save more. That leverages labor. It makes all of us more productive. Creates an economic blessing. And of course, hard work. If we follow God's law, if we obey him and we work hard, seven days you labor, one day you rest. Well, I mean, we're going to, of course, have an increase. Uh, Proverbs says, lazy people want much but get little, but those who work hard will prosper. Um, it says, good planning and hard work lead to prosperity, but hasty shortcuts lead to poverty. That's Proverbs 21.5. And those who work their land will have abundant food. But those who chase fantasies have no sense. It's another good proverb. All of those show that the moral life, obeying God's law, causes economic prosperity. Yes, sometimes in a supernatural order, but really in the natural order, especially when we do this together. That's not the only economic blessing that was listed earlier or is listed later. We also have one of safety and security. So if we have a virtuous people, will have a strong military. I talked earlier about how I think it's a virtuous thing. It takes enormous courage and self-sacrifice to, uh, to join the military, to, to, to make that enormous sacrifice, impartial, in part because of the ridiculous contract you're signing up for. Um, yeah, that's going to increase our safety and security if we have more people willing to self-sacrifice, more people who are honest, more people who work hard, and more people who are courageous. Aristotle talks about, I believe, in the politics that Although might does not make right, it is true that all things equal, if two nations go to war, 
the one which has a more virtuous citizenry is more likely to prevail. So in his view, war is not all that bad because, you know, not always, but majority of the time, the good people will win. Um, the saints remind us that to work on any one virtue actually increases all of them. So the country that can field courageous, honest, self-sacrificial, hardworking, um, uh, diligent people, um, and therefore defeat people who are cowardly and uh, dishonest and lying to one another. Oh no, I swear I can I can take that hill over there. People won't sacrifice. Who will put the next person in danger? Uh, people won't work hard. People who aren't diligent. People who won't uh, you know <laughs> actually have the martial virtues. Um, those people get defeated and those people are probably the same people who won't practice those and other virtues in a peaceful time. Um, so there you go. We have the blessing of safety, security, economic blessings. All of these flow from. It's not just it's God's miracle that these come about. It just flows from the fact of obedience because virtue just brings these things about and the law is meant to prompt virtue, these habits of right living with respect to God, others, and the created order. I will grant peace in the land and you will lay down and no one will make you afraid. I will remove wild beasts from the land and the Lord will not and the sword will not pass through your country. You will pursue your enemies and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred and a hundred of you will chase 10,000 and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. I will look on you with favor and make you fruitful and increase your numbers and I will keep my covenant with you. You will still be eating last year's harvest when you have to move it out and make room for the new. I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God. That's huge. That's a messianic prophecy right there. I will walk among you and be your God. And you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, so you will no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with your heads held high. That's the goal of right worship. Not be slaves, not be under tyranny, not be ruled by evil nations and evil rulers, but instead have the Lord's yoke to be able to walk with our heads held high. Every blessing ultimately flows from right worship, holding our heads up high, and actually having the beatific vision ultimately. Not being caved in on oneself and and, uh, selfishness. Which brings us to the punishment of disobedience. Dun, dun, dun. But if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commandments, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commandments and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring on you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and sap your strength. You will plant seed in vain, because your enemies will eat it, and I will set my face against you so that you will, you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. There's a line from Ernest Hemingway, I believe, who, um, uh, who I, I, I guess he was, what was he? I don't want to say anything terrible about the guy. But anyways, life was not going well for him for whatever reason. 
And he went bankrupt, terribly bankrupt. And some of his friends said, I thought you had a lot of money. Like you were spending it all over. We thought you were pretty wealthy. How did you go bankrupt? And he replies, well, first slowly and then all at once, (laughs) which I really like. Everybody knows that feeling of money is everywhere. I can buy anything to all of a sudden the the train just crashes and you're broke. So first slowly and then all at once. Um, That's one of the effects of sin. And it says it right here that it will destroy your sight. That is a punishment for disobedience. It actually blinds you. Earlier, we read in the Proverbs that um, proper planning and foresight will bring you this, these blessings, right? But here, if we disobey God's law, our sight is destroyed. And that means that we have sudden terror coming upon us, that we have wasting diseases. We, we see our money, our resources, our own health just fleeting. Um, maybe the equivalent of our wasting diseases could be something like obesity, right? Where we, we act in a certain pattern of thought whereby we see our body becoming less and less and less healthy. Um, so this sudden terror, I, I think we've all been in situations where um, we've been battered about by, by life. We didn't have proper planning. We weren't forward thinking. We weren't acting virtuously. And then something happens and we're just battered about by it. The solution? Um, well, it's right worship. It's returning to uh, it's returning to God. It's repentance. Um, it's trust in Christ who calms the waves that batter us about. He's not terribly concerned for the things that happen. Um, yeah. Let's see. We got some other punishments here, so so let's keep on rolling. If after all this you will not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. Your strength will be spent in vain because your soil soil will not yield its crops, nor will the trees of your land yield their fruit. You know, the story of Babel had people trying to build a giant skyscraper up to, to ascend to God. And here it says, no, a punishment is that we just cap your ascent by an immovable barrier of iron. And not only can you not ascend, but down on earth, when you try to get the basic things for your living, I'll make the ground as if it's bronze. If anybody's ever tried farming in very rocky soil, you know how hard that is. Imagine if the whole thing was bronze. You feel like you're squeezed from both sides. All of your dreams are crushed and all your attempts to fulfill your needs right in front of you are stifled. If you're in that situation, or if you feel just battered about by life, or if you feel like you've um, all of us you've just been wasting away, or if you feel like you've um, you know had any of these other things happen to you, it could be that you are bearing some of the cross of Christ. Could be, or it could be that you need to cultivate that life of worship, those habits of virtue, that correct ordering of God at the top. And then all other good things down in proper order in the hierarchy of goods below that. It could be that this is God telling you that you are running up against, um, you're running up against just spiritual physics, which say that virtue brings about the good life. Virtue is the good life. If you remain hostile 
towards me and refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your affliction seven times over as your sins deserve. I will send wild animals against you, and they will rob you of your children, destroy your cattle, and make so few in number that your roads will be deserted. So don't think that these sevens are evil. I know there's a bunch of sevens here, here in the seventh episode of Leviticus. Um, God is still metering out his mercy through this. All of these things are meant to drive us back to worship, drive us away from slavery, drive us out of sin, and drive us towards joy. So although maybe Lamech wishing for the vengeance on others, if anybody harms him, um, that's not what we want. That leads to a cycle of evil and violence. What we're looking at here is no cycle of evil. This is a uh, tool of redemption instead. So few in number that your roads will be deserted. Currently, we are facing a population crisis. No, we are not overpopulated in the world, not even close. Instead, um, we have an aging population. We have a ridiculous contraction in childbirth. And we're going to have empty roads, empty cities, empty houses. Um, In our lifetime, we will see that. Already, there's uh, China contracting in population. Japan contracting in population. Um, This is scary stuff. This shows that there's something wrong with the culture. Not you. Like, it could be that you have one of a variety of things happening to you right now that you don't have kids or a bunch of kids or whatever. Um, But it does seem to hold true with societies, right? And all of these punishments, it could just be incidental that you bore one, but it's not really that incidental if a whole society bears it. There's a lot of random variation in our individual lives, but like any time that you collect, say, 330 million, if you're in the U.S., um, individual varying things, um, those variations at the top level um, generally iron out, and they do here. And if we see a vector one way or the other, um, be sure that there's a, there's a very good reason for that. So when we see that we have whole societies which are slowly depopulating, that should tell us that this is a type of judgment from God, not a supernatural one that comes out of nowhere, God striking people in some way to make them not have kids. No, no, no. It's a natural consequence of going away from right worship. And the punishment just follows on that, that your roads will be deserted, that you will be few in number. If in spite of all these things, you do not accept my correction, but continue to be hostile towards me, I myself will be hostile towards you and will afflict you and with your sins seven times over. And I will bring the sword on you to avenge the breaking of the covenant. When you, withsta- when you withdraw into your cities, I will send a plague among you, and you will be given into enemy hands. When I cut off your supply of bread, ten women will be able to bake your bread in one oven, and they will dole out the bread by weight. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. So, this kind of sounds like plagues to me, right? We even have a plague, right? I'm going to send a plague on you. What it's showing is that Pharaoh's gone. Pharaoh was defeated by God himself. You were brought out of slavery. But you can be Pharaoh in your own life. Um, As a society, you can set up other Pharaohs. And guess what? I'm bringing plagues on them too. And (laughs) why? Because my whole goal is freedom. Freedom 
to worship. That's what the law is about. You hear people say, oh, the law was this terrible burden on people. And, oh, God's holy law sent from a holy mountain, from God himself. Oh, it was just so awful. It wasn't. It was to inculcate a spirit of virtue, of freedom, of right worship. And that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's what it's meant to do here. God goes against even the pharaohs in our own life. He goes against us when we act as Pharaoh. And then when we repent, he blesses us. Okay, if in spite of this, you do not listen to me, but continue to be hostile towards me. And note how God slowly ratchets this up. One thing, then another thing. He brings this punishment in order to always turn us back to him. Then in my anger, I will be hostile towards you. And I myself will punish you for your sins seven times over. You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and pile your dead bodies on the lifeless forms of your idols, and I will abhor you. I will turn your cities into ruins, and I will lay waste to your sanctuaries. I will take no delight in the pleasing aromas of your offerings. I myself will lay waste to your land, so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. And I will scatter you among the nations, and will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste, and your cities will lie in ruins. Then the, the land will enjoy its Sabbath years, at the time that it lays desolate and you are in the country of your enemies. Then the land will enjoy, will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. And all the time that it lies desolate, the land will have it rest. It will, will have the rest that it did not have during the Sabbaths that you lived in. That's pretty wild. That sounds like prophetic book kind of stuff right there. Um, by the way, Israel did get this evil. Um, they were brought out of the land, and um, they were besieged at one point. And in Second Kings 6, we have two mothers agree to eat their own kids. So, yes, um, these punishments, some of these did actually happen, which is pretty horrifying. As for those of you who are left, I will make their hearts so fearful in the lands of their enemies that the sound of a windblown leaf will put them to flight. They will run as though fleeing from the sword, and they will fall, even though no one is pursuing them. They will stumble over one another as though fleeing from the sword, even though no one is pursuing them. So you will not be able to stand before your enemies. You will perish among the nations. The land of your enemies will devour you. Those of you who are left will waste away in the lands of their enemies because of their sins. Also, because of their ancestors' sins, they will waste away. What this kind of reminds me of is the culture of offense that we have right now. Um, recently, uh, Michael Knowles, at a CPAC speech, called for the eradication of tra transgender ideology. Ideology. But this rustling leaf was enough to send people into panic. We're being pursued by the sword. He's calling for genocide. <laughs> That's what people said that uh, he was calling for genocide. What I see here is that these are people who are currently living these type of punishments because they're not following God's law. As a result, even the smallest thing, even the smallest offense, even the most microaggression puts them to flight, puts them in fear, makes them run, makes them stumble. Um, 
Yeah, that's the culture of offense right there. It's a terrible way to live. Can you imagine if every microaggression seemed so dire, seemed so scary? That's actually a punishment on them. But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility towards me, which made me hostile towards them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies, then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. And I will remember the land for the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lays desolate without them. They will pay for their sins because they rejected my laws and abhorred my decrees. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors, who I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. Confess the sins of their ancestors. So it's pretty clear you got to confess your sins. But what does it mean to confess the sins of their ancestors? Well, it doesn't mean that you're guilty for the sins of your ancestors. That's not a thing. Scripture directly opposes that. Nobody bears guilt of their father or their father's father. Scripture says as much. Um, but what it does mean is that we need to repent. We need to turn the other way, not just from our sins, but from inherited practices that bring about sinful acts in us and in society. An example could be somebody could uh, confess abortion. That could be their sin. They can confess that. But we also need to turn away from being a culture whereby the evils of things like the sexual revolution uh, open the floodgates for these types of sin, whereby we pass laws to allow people to do such evil acts. So those, we didn't pass the laws. Maybe our, our ancestors did, or well, recent ancestors. So we need to undo those, and thank goodness some have been undone. Um, but yes, it means that we need to uh, critically examine the modes of operation that we have inherited, and then we turn them back to um, be in line with God's law. Note that even in the midst of being brought into an enemy nation, even in the midst of all this terrible stuff, God still is going to be faithful to the covenant. He still remembers that this is his people, and he still is open to them confessing their sins. These are the degrees and the laws and the regulations that the Lord established at Mount Sinai between himself and the Israelites through Moses. So here's an interesting aside here. Uh, there's a couple mountains which are extraordinarily important in Scripture. Uh, one of them is obviously Mount Sinai. Um, but there's two other mountains which are involved in the giving of the law. So I'm going to read this from uh, Deuteronomy 11. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. I figured this was pertinent since we were talking about the blessings and curses of the law. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I am giving you today. The curse, if you disobey the commandments of the Lord your God and turn away from the command that, I, that you today are given and to other gods, which you have not known. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land you are entering to possess, 
you are to proclaim on Mount Gizurim the blessings and on Mount Abilal the curses. As you know, these mountains are across the Jordan, westward towards the setting sun, near the great trees of Moriah, in the territory of those Canaanites living in the Arabah, in the vicinity of Gilgad. You are about to cross the Jordan to enter and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you. When you have taken over it and you are living there, be sure that you obey all the decrees and laws I am setting before you today. So there you go. They're climbing these two opposing mountains. And the way into the promised land here, right? You're going to walk through. They're on either mountain. And then half of them are over. So six of the tribes go over um, to the one mountain. And then six of the tribes go over to the other mountain. And um, one of them is the, the curses mountain. One of them is the blessings mountain. And they, um, they speak the curses and speak the blessings over to the people. I think this is interesting because oftentimes we're told we need to focus on Christ's mercy, on his love, on the blessings of his redemption. But there's other people who say, actually, Jesus preached a lot about hell. Uh, he flipped over the, the tables in the temple. Um, Jesus, I mean, come on. He was not just, just Mr. Love and Mercy all the time. Um, he prophesied coming destruction. We also need to preach about the curses, about hell, about sin. We need to preach about that. I mean, come on. So who's right? I contend both of them. Some of us are supposed to climb the mountain of curses and to shout out the curses that people are going to have if they live in discord with what God has commanded. And others of us are meant to be part of the tribe that climbed the mountain of blessings, which shout out the blessings that, that will be had if we do follow God's command. I think it should be roughly 50-50 because, well, that's what I saw here in the Old Testament, six and six. And it's not that they all took a turn saying each. I do think there is a legitimate amount of um, division of labor here. We, we need the scary preachers and we need the nice preachers. All right, on to our very last chapter. I think we're going to have to take a break. I can only record one hour at a time on this software, believe it or not, and I don't think I have quite enough time to rip through everything. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If anyone makes a special vow to dedicate a person to the Lord by giving the equivalent value, set the value of a male between the ages of 20 and 60 at 50 shekels of silver, according to the sanctuary shekel. For a female, set her value at 30 shekels. For a person between the ages of 5 and 20, set the value of a male at 20 shekels, and of a female at 10 shekels. For a person between one month and five years, set the value of a male at five shekels, and of silver, of silver, and that of a female at three shekels of silver. For a person sixty years or more, set the value of a male at fifteen shekels, and a female at ten shekels. If anyone making the vow is too poor to pay this specified amount, the person being dedicated is to be presented to the priest, who will set the value according to what the person making the vow can afford. A special vow to dedicate a person to the Lord. Hmm, interesting. 
These numbers are also interesting. One is we're told that Joseph in the in the book of Genesis was a young man. And when he was sold to the to the um is it Midianites or whoever was coming by by his brothers, he was betrayed for 20 pieces of silver. And 20 pieces of silver is the amount that one would pay to specially dedicate one to the Lord um, for somebody between the ages of 5 and 20. So that's some evidence that he could have just been between the age of 5 and 20. So he's a teenager at that point. That seems to fit with what we know of the story. Um, So he's dedicated to the Lord in this act. Now, it's an act of betrayal, but it turns out that it's actually dedicating him to God. Now, you might be wondering, then why was Jesus betrayed for 30 pieces of silver? Shouldn't he be betrayed for 50? Because that's the price for a male. Well, you'd think so. Except, his act wasn't actually to dedicate himself to God. He's already God. His betrayal, and then his, his crucifixion and resurrection... His giving of himself was actually meant to dedicate us to God, his bride to God. And what would her value be? For a female, set her value at 30 shekels. So there you go. Um, This relates to uh, the bride of Christ being specially dedicated. Um, God paints straight with crooked lines. So even Judas's evil act of betrayal He's worked into God's plan so that he fulfills the prophecies that say that he's going to be betrayed and whatnot. And it fulfills the law, showing that God buys us for a, thir- or it dedicates us with those 30 shekels. If what they vowed is an animal that is acceptable as an offering to the Lord, such an animal given to the Lord becomes holy. They must not exchange it or substitute it for one, for a good one, for a bad one, or a bad one for a good one. If they should substitute one animal for another, both it and the substitute become holy. And that one's interesting too. Um, And I think you can pull out the implications. If what they vowed is a ceremonially unclean animal, one that is not acceptable as an offering to the Lord, the animal must be presented to the priest, who will judge its quality as good or bad. Whatever value the priest then sets, that is what it will be. The owner wishes to redeem the animal. A fifth must be added to its value. Interesting thing is, in these redemption laws where you give up something and then you need it back, um, the redemption is always over and above the stated value. Um, And of course, that's what we see in the ultimate redemption of us and all of creation, animals, land, houses, stars, moons, planets, everything. Everything is redeemed. And in this over and above way, through what Christ offers as God through his sacrifice. Another thing is, note that again and again, we see value being set by the priest, and we see the shekel is compared to the temple shekel. We commented in the very first episode about how worship is the assigning of worth, and that ultimately what God's doing here in Leviticus is saying, check everything against God himself. He's your reference point. Right worship as defined by God. Um, That's the center. And from there, everything is measured off of that. So we don't measure things based on um, our our desire for 
for whatever, based on uh, our desire for wealth, power, pleasure, honor, what we ultimately should be measuring everything off of is measuring it in accord with God, his command, and uh, what he's uh, uh, revealed to us in uh, the role of proper worship. If anyone dedicates their house as something holy to the Lord, the priest will judge its quality as good or bad, whatever value the priest sets, so it will remain. And the one who dedicates their house, who wishes to redeem it, they must add a fifth to its value, and the house will become, again, theirs. Again, we have the priest deciding the worth. If anybody dedicates to the Lord part of their family land, its value is to be set according to the amount of seed required for it, 50 shekels of silver to a homer of barley seed. If they dedicate a field during the year of Jubilee, the value that has been set remains. But if they dedicate a field after Jubilee, the priest will determine the value according to the number of years that remain until the next year of Jubilee, and its set value will be reduced. If the one who dedicates the field wishes to redeem it, they must add a fifth to its value, and the field will again be theirs. If, however, they do not redeem the field, or if they have it sold to someone else, it can never be redeemed. When the field is released in the Jubilee, it will become holy, like a field devoted to the Lord. It will become priestly property. If anyone dedicates to the Lord a field they have bought, which is not part of their family land, the priest will determine its value, and value it according to the year of Jubilee, and, well, we get all the regular stuff here. And it goes on to talk about more about the firstborn animals, etc., etc. One comment is, I got to study this one a little bit more, but it seems to mirror some Corban rules. I don't know exactly what they were referencing in the New Testament, but it kind of sounds like dedication to God, right? That's some of the Corban stuff. I think I said earlier that um, the, in one of the episodes that they would have to break an oath to get out of this. That's possible. I think the Pharisees may have tried to um, avoid the provision that it could be redeemed, but I don't know for certain. So, correction there. What's possible is that when Jesus is saying, hey, you should take care of your family with your land, with your flocks and herds and things like that, um, instead of just dedicating it to the temple and saying, sorry, mom and dad, I don't have anything to, uh, to help you out with in your old age. Maybe Jesus was saying, you don't actually have to sin at all. You don't have to break your oath because you can just abide by this here Levitical law, whereby you add a fifth to the value of what you dedicated, redeem it back, and then you would use that to care for your aged parents. So that might be what's going on here. Um, next line. No person devoted to destruction may be ransomed. They are to be put to death. That is um, unrepented mortal sin, of course. If you have devoted yourself to destruction, um, yeah, you can't be ransomed. You have to be put to death. And why does this come out of seemingly nowhere? It's because everything else leading up to this is the absolute inverse. We have a lot of mirror images here. We have the blessings. We have the curses. We have the myriad of ways that you can dedicate yourself, uh, family members, uh, property, uh, houses, you name it. You can dedicate all of these things to God. And then the contrary to that is a dedication to destruction. 
So we often think like sacrifice, giving things up to God is just gone. Oh, no, it's ruined. It's not mine anymore. But no, that's not what the law shows. It shows that destruction actually comes when you dedicate it to yourself, when you keep everything for yourself, when you cave in on oneself, when you act in a vicious manner. That's the way that we dedicate everything to destruction, when we dedicate it to our own idols, to our own desires. When we give it up to God, when we make it available for our neighbor, when we move out of love towards the things which are given into our care, well, that's the point that um, it becomes a blessing to us, to others, a sacrifice to God. It's good. But we're actually putting ourselves to death when we devote ourselves to uh, the very opposite of that. Throw in another thing. Uh, Catholics have a lot of ideas of uh, dedication to, to God or, or, or to Mary or to Joseph or to this or that. Um, this isn't out of nowhere. There is dedication to certain purposes um, that's uh, built into Scripture, and I would give this as an example whereby we can give things up for the service of God. Even fields, flocks, herds, stuff like that. All right, um, and this is how Leviticus is ending. It's ending all about the laws, the myriad of ways that we can be devoted to God. Because again, the theme of Leviticus is how to be holy as a nation, as a uh, family, as a people, in economic life, in every single facet, even in respect to the ways that we deal with the land itself, which is ending at. We kind of begin with God, then we go to people, and then we hit a lot of stuff about the created order. So it's how to be holy in regard to God, others in the created order. All right, a um, few more verses. So let's hit those and we'll be wrapped up. A tithe of everything from the Lord, whether grain from the soil or fruit trees from the fruit from the fruit from the trees belong to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Whoever would redeem any of their tithe must add a fifth to the value. Every tithe of the flock and herd, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. No one may pick out the good from the bad or make any substitution. If any does make a substitution, both the animal and its substitute become holy and cannot be redeemed. The law was um, the law was what God initially gave his people. And here it's ending with what we give back in tithe, in um, redemption, in all these myriad ways it's listed. Bishop Barron gives an excellent example. He describes a spiritual life as being like a game of catch, where God throws us the ball, we catch it, and then we throw it back to him. And then he throws it back to us, and we're playing playing catch. So he's giving us um, his love, his providence, his, his mercy, his grace, and we're meant to not just keep that as a private possession, not to hoard that, that's the way of destruction. Instead, just to dedicate our lives to God. He gave himself to us in Christ. We give ourselves to him. We're passing back and forth in this game of catch, just like happens in the Trinity, where the Father and the Son from all eternity pour forth the love of the Holy Spirit back and forth. Being brought into God's family, um, being slaves of Christ, right, means that we are brought into that type of relationship. We're meant to learn that. That's how we become spiritually rich. That's how we get the richness of eternal life, is learning to act like the, uh, the, the members of the Trinity act, internal to the Godhead. 
These are the commandments the Lord gave Moses at Mount Sinai for the Israelites. There you go. That's the last words of Leviticus. Um, I hope you guys uh, learned a lot listening. I learned a lot putting them together. We have spent something like nine hours going through this together, um, and it was certainly not enough. There was stuff that I skipped because I knew I couldn't get to it. Um, there's certainly stuff that I repeated on accident. Um, but um, yeah, this has been studied for thousands of years by extraordinarily intelligent people. I barely scratched the surface. Um, I pray that I represented this amazing book well, um, but I know that there is much, much, much more. People like David meditated on God's law day and night. Uh, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus himself broke open the law and the prophets and showed where it was speaking of him. So when we pulled out a lot of themes about how this is showing Christ, I think that's exactly what this was always meant to do. Well, um, if you guys have a book of the Bible you'd like me to go through, uh, let me know. I will consider it. This is a lot of work, but um, a lot of you guys have written in and said that you really appreciated the Leviticus episode, so that's awesome. I'm really glad you did. So kudos for making it through to episode seven. Um, I also am considering hitting a few other particular uh, stories throughout scripture, um, chiefly the story of Jacob. I think that one's an interesting one. I think I mentioned that at the top of the episode. Of course, if you have any things that you desperately want to hear, um, so far I think I'm up on almost all of the episode suggestions. There's just a few I need to put out um, so that everybody got their request. So email me at thegordiannot101 at gmail.com. Let me know where you're listening from, how you heard about this, um, which episodes you enjoyed. Um, and I do invite you to, I know every podcaster says this, um, but uh, it does really help when you hit the the review buttons and fill in a review, stuff like that. It, it helps more people find it. And if you can, if this was helpful, share it with some friends. Um, it helps the podcast grow and that warms my heart. And uh, yeah, a lot of people recently have found the podcast and have let me know that they've really benefited from it. So as long as I'm getting those, I'm going to still encourage you guys to share it. Um, well, God bless you all. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the upcoming episodes I'm preparing.